cross, my quiver's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm a downdoor junkie through and through, hunts my middle name. My eyes are on the target, broadheads all fly true. Can't wait till I can get outside so I can fling a few. Welcome back to the Track Quest Podcast. James Orr here. What's going on, Bob the Bow Hunter? How much, buddy? How you doing? I'm just getting so pumped up talking to all these legends and hearing all these hunting stories. I don't know how I'm going to contain myself. It's we're, we're so far from uh, getting to go hunting. I know it's tough, man. I mean, we've uh, we've had some awesome guys on here, and just the stories just get me. I'm ready, fired up. Yeah, uh, I'm really excited to uh, announce that we were able to bring the true living legend, Marv Klinke. I, I mean, we are blessed to be able to have these conversations with guys like Marv and holy moly. Yeah, incredible guy. We had him on um, several episodes ago, 10 or 15 ago, and he's just somebody that's done so much we couldn't we just kind of touched on everything you know going over his involvement with all the organizations he's been involved in and helped start and you know the seasons in Colorado and and we we brushed over all that and i think everybody that knows marv knows he's a a mule deer nut and a high country backpack and fool even though he's you know getting up there in age he's just an absolute stud and and so uh, we brought him back on and and we really dug into how he's hunted mule deer and got some of his secrets and, and tricks in there and heard some awesome stories and just just great guy, man. Awesome. Yes, secrets, tactics, and tricks. Yeah, he's got, he's got some <laughs> he's good got tricks, some that's tricks. for sure. He's got some tricks. Yeah, he was on episode 28, and it was kind of like a get-to-know-Marv, and we kind of covered a lot in that one, but we, yeah, it was really good to dive into his passion of high country mule deer, and I think we uh, did a good job with that. Um, I th- I found it you know super intriguing and exciting at the same time, and we uh, are are going to follow that up by getting one of his number one hunting partners, his son Todd Clinky. We're going to line him up and get another perspective of that high country hunting. Uh, yeah, we just want to thank Marv, uh, for doing all he's done for bow hunting. Cause like, like you just alluded to, he's done so much for, uh, the state of Colorado, but he's done so much for traditional bow hunting and all bow hunters. Um, I mean, he is, uh, the kind of guy we all want to be. That's for sure. And, and he's doing it at seven. I think he's 76. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Something like that. And he, oh, epic story from that you guys will hear on here from his 70th birthday and just up in the mountains, miles from the truck, right before dark, just doing his thing. I mean, incredible. I mean, yeah. if, I'm hope I just pray that I could, I could be that age doing what he's doing. So, yeah, it's my motivating factor on how I live my life and trying to make 
positive choices on how I eat and, and just what I'm doing because I want to be bow hunting at 70. I mean, what an awesome milestone. It's, and he's so sharp and so with it. It's, it's awesome. And uh, we need to definitely, we talk about it at the end of this podcast, but I'll talk about it in the beginning. Um, Mars been after a desert bighorn tag in the state of Colorado and it sounds like it's an impossible tag to get but man uh, I, I let's just all pray and cross our fingers and petition I mean this guy deserves to get this tag I hope somehow some way he gets lucky and draws it and we can have him back on to tell another epic uh, adventure from Marv Klinky for sure that would be awesome I hope you guys enjoy this podcast with Marv Klinky we sure did we'd also like to thank our partner Kafaro International. They make awesome backpacks and tents made here in America. So definitely support them because they support us. Hello. We got (laughs) you. You got me. (laughs) (laughs) Tell you the Uh, truth, I had forgot all about this. (laughs) Oh. I get. I'm getting old, I guess. <laughs> so I'm. I'm glad you called. Oh, uh, great, Bob! Bob had the new cell phone number one digit off, and we ended up calling a golf course in California. <laughs> oh, <laughs> now yeah, you're not going to find me at a golf course. <laughs> not going to find me at a golf course. That's for sure. Oh, uh, it's great. So, how have you been, Marv? Oh, doing good. Yeah, doing good. Just getting ready for turkey season. <laughs> got to get the doldrums in the spring, so you got to got to get ready for that turkey season and get out there and sling some more arrows. I hope. Yeah. So, what is turkey open April first in Colorado? Or uh, no, it's about. Uh, I think it's the second week in april i usually go to nebraska and I hunt nebraska first because their season opens a couple weeks ahead of time of okay. ours and uh, so i get over there and sling some arrows over there first awesome so what uh what what bow and arrows are you sh- shooting for uh this season uh, i'm still shooting a black canyon longbow uh 50 pound and uh i shoot footed wood arrows that uh, are made up in Canada by David Cartwright. He makes the shafts and then I make up the arrows. And I use my own turkey feathers for that. And I just love love making them with my own wild turkey feathers. I think it kind of makes them kind of neat. Yeah, absolutely. And, yes. and then uh, uh, still using the switchblade, the old Ben Pearson switchblade broadheads because I've got a lot of them. So and they do the job, and I just can't see changing when it works. So, <laughs> yeah, definitely. So we had you uh, on back. What was that? Uh, I don't know. I think it was episode. I don't even recall, but it was back about ten episodes ago, and we kind of jumped all over the place and talked about Colorado Big Eight, and you know got to know you but we really wanted to dive deep into the mule deer hunting in colorado we know that that is something you're really passionate about and we would definitely like to learn more about that okay well the way it started with me was uh of course i started hunting deer 
when I was 14 years old with a bow, and because we have our, the the ranch right here, and our family had some other ranch land up against the mountains, and of course there was a lot of deer around there. And up to that time, I'd go out with my uncle and those guys that shoot a deer the first thing in the morning, and then uh, when I was 14, of uh, the, the first season, I shot one just at daylight the first morning, and I thought, geez, this isn't any fun. <laughs> so we could take a second uh, deer in, in that period of time, so I took my bow out then. And I didn't kill a deer, but I found that that was what I wanted to do, was to stay with the rifle, or with the bow, I mean. And I did kill some deer after that with a rifle because uh, it was uh, pretty difficult to, to get a deer with a bow then when you didn't have any manners or you didn't know what you were doing. <laughs> but about, uh, I think it was when I turned 20, uh, I killed my first deer with a bow. And, of course, that was the end of the rifle hunting altogether then. So, so uh, I, what... What changed? Like, what was the techniques that you employed, and what did you learn? Like, how did you start uh, getting serious uh, about hunting with the bow for the deer, and you know, exp- you know, break that down for us? Well, the the first, of course, all of that hunting was done low, you know, uh, and I mean, eight thousand feet, eighty five hundred feet in the trees and open meadows and that type of stuff, and uh, we were just we'd just get in the wind in our favor and, and, uh, stalk and real slow still hunt, you know, until we saw something. And that's why I killed that first deer. But then a year later, uh, we just by pure accident, we met a, a guy from the game and fish department that was a sheep hunter and not a sheep hunter, but a sheep biologist. And he just lived about three miles from me, and we went down to talk to him about sheep hunting because we thought that would be kind of fun. And at at that time, you could draw a permit every time you put it in, which was every other year. And that put us into the high country looking for sheep, and we were just floored by the amount of mule deer that they were up there and the big mule deer. And so that first year in 1960, why, uh, we went up, uh, we drew a sheep permit in Georgetown area, which is now one of the best of the bow hunting areas. And it was, uh, it was just phenomenal deer country up above timberline. And I thought, now this is the place where a guy needs to be hunting because nobody hunted deer up there at that time. Uh, you would never hear of anybody taking a buck above timberline at that time. So we were hunting sheep up there, and that first year, I hunted, did hunt sheep with a rifle because we had no idea. Everybody said you could never kill one with a bow, <laughs> and so I did hunt sheep that year, and, and I killed a a, a twenty one point mule deer the first morning, and I think it was probably about the twentieth or twenty first deer that I saw that morning by seven o'clock, and how it had only been open for a couple of hours. My hunting buddy, who is a rifle hunter, who is my cousin, he shot a Boone and Crockett, typical mule deer, and that was the 17th deer that he saw that morning in the next basin over from where I was at. Because we both had sheep permits. And uh, when we were packing, we had horses, and we were back in quite a ways. And when we were packing my buck out we walked into another non-typical buck that was considerably bigger than the one that i shot 
the one that I shot made Boone and Crockett at the time, but this other buck was just phenomenal. I mean, you couldn't count the points on him. He had so many points. And that right there just uh, said, man, you've got to start hunting this high country. So in the, in the bow season, which started just a week or so after that happened, I went back up into that same area and I killed another uh, buck, which with my second one with the bow. And, uh, there I just, I shot the first deer that I got a chance at, which was not a big one, but I did see some big bucks. And then the following year, I decided that I was going to hold out for a, a bigger buck. And I hunted in the high country, just above us up here around Netherlands and right along the continental divide. And that was above timberline there too. And opening morning, uh, the wind was blowing pretty hard, and I got up there to where I could see, and I see this bunch of bucks feeding in some brush up there. And with that wind blowing like that, I was able to stalk up within about five yards of those bucks. And I was on one side of kind of a row of brush, and they were feeding on the other side of it, which was like five yards away. And, of course, that wind blowing just hid all my noise. And I uh, got up there, and I... I could lean up and, and see this buck right across from me, but I couldn't get high enough to shoot at him. And there was kind of a, of a dirt, uh, grassy thing right there that they grow up, you know, like kind of a drum, like a fair. And I stepped up on that and shot down on him and, and, uh, hit him right in the side. And then I just run just a little bit where I could see through the brush and I could see these deer scattering and I could see that buck running down through the draw and he come up the other side and I took a shot at him and, and missed him. The wind blew the arrow off of him. Uh, it blew it clear to the front of him, which was the luckiest thing on my deal because that was the wrong buck. <laughs> and I walked, I walked through the, I walked through the, through that brush and went back to where I'd shot my buck, uh, the other buck. And I looked down and he was only laying down there about 25 yards in the bottom of the draw. So I was extremely lucky that I missed that other one. I had two of them on one license. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. And, and of course that right there, you know, that was a real nice three by four buck that uh, made Pope and Young and, and of course, I was really excited about that and packed him out by myself that day and down into the bottom. And, uh, I learned in a hurry that you bone those things out, skin them and bone them out and take them out that way. So you don't have to carry so much out of there. Right. But that country was the same way. It was just loaded with big bucks and it was all above timberline. Wow. So we're, was the tactic early on? to glass them and bed them and stock them did you did you figure that out pretty quick or uh, how, how did that yeah evolve? it you know it didn't it didn't take long for uh, me to do that and the other thing that happened shortly after that is uh one of our neighbor farmer ranchers down the road here uh their son was really really interested in uh archery and i got him started shooting a bow and he was Oh, I would guess he's probably seven or eight years younger than I am. And I got him started with the bow and we became fast bow hunting buddies. 
And he started hunting with me in that high country because I kept telling him about all those big bucks up there. And, in fact, he was here yesterday, and we got uh, reminiscent about how many arrows we lost in that country up there shooting at those big bucks. But uh, we started hunting back again over in that Georgetown area, and it was just incredible. There was three basins that were in fingers, like you, if you would just hold out three fingers. And those basins come down into the bottom and map down there. Well, we would go up, hike into that area, which was about four or five miles into the bottom. And then we would hunt the one that had the wind blowing in our favor, which was normally the north uh, basin. And we would hunt that one out. And if we didn't kill anything, then we'd go to the middle one. And then if we didn't do any good there, we'd go to the south one. And uh, at that time, you know, we were... It was nothing for us to shoot at a dozen bucks a day and miss and We were just, you know, we were young and we, we were probably weren't shooting the way we were supposed to shoot. And, and, uh, but, uh, once in a while we'd, uh, get lucky and get one there, but it was just phenomenal how many big bucks there was in that area, in all of these areas. And I think the sad part about it was it's up here where I killed that first buck above us right along the Continental Divide. About two or three years after I killed that buck, the Game and Fish Department decided that they needed to figure out a way to get more of those deer. So they opened a rifle season up there, an early rifle season. Well, that area there was quite accessible, and they just slaughtered those deer. It's never came back. I mean, and that was like in 1962, Wow! and uh, it, it never came back. They killed everything that had antlers up there, and it was just devastating. And, of course, it run the, the does and the fawns out of there completely, too, because there were so many guys hunting and so much shooting going on. And uh, we hunted that season up there with our bows, but uh, it was useless because there was so many hunters and because it, it was so accessible and it so just ruined that you got two good years in there and then they uh shot them out so now imagine the hunting is more difficult and you were going to have to um you know really sharpen your skills if you're going to continue in an area that didn't have as much game i mean is that correct yes that is and by that time uh, we had learned how to hunt them a lot better because, you know, just with the experience that we were hunting them in that high country, because at that time you didn't have to draw a permit. You just bought an over the counter permit. You can hunt anywhere in the state. So we would go to different areas and, and, uh, uh, hike into the high country to hunt them. And about that time, uh, Judy and I bought a property down at fair play west of fair play at 10,000 feet and we built a cabin down there and that area was the same thing there were so many big bucks in that area all mostly above timberline well immediately uh when we were building that cabin uh that fall i started hunting that high country and i killed a big buck up there Oh, I had hiked in my uh one son and i uh, second the youngest son and i had hiked into this area where we were seeing these big bucks up along the timberline and uh, the first day we got into those bucks but we couldn't get any shooting in and brent 
coming down with, I don't know whether he was, yeah, I think it was a little bit of food poisoning or something. So he was pretty sick that night. And I told him, I said, well, just keep an eye up there and uh, maybe I'll go head back and see what I can do. Well, I ended up going up and getting into those same bucks and uh, killing a, another really big buck. And I shot him at about, I don't know, 10 or 20 yards. There was a, a quite a wide buck in there. I was guessing about 30, 31 inches wide, but his points weren't very long. And I thought, boy, I'm going to shoot him. He was really a nice buck. And I I snuck down onto these deer in a, uh, a burn area right at Timberline. And as I just had started to draw my bow on that buck, and this other one walked up. And I could see he was quite a lot bigger, and he was within four or five yards of the big wide one. And I just moved the bow over and shot him. (laughs) (laughs) It worked out pretty good. And then we just kept hunting that area down there, uh, even after they started having permits. And I took quite a few guys up in there with me to hunt hunt those big bucks up in there and would show them how to do it. And normally what we would do is we would get on a high spot at daylight where we could look into one of those basins and we would watch those deer feeding because they would be up feeding above the brush. And we'd watch them and watch them in about, uh, usually about 8.30 and you could almost set your watch by it. They would bed down and they would bed down up there above timberline where you never had a prayer above the brush line, you know, where you never had a prayer getting in on them. And I discovered this pretty early by watching them. And what would happen is the sun would hit those deer and start warming them up. And about nine, nine thirty or so, they would get up and move down into that brush and lay down. And 99% of the time you could not see them in that brush because they would lay down in the cool holes. And once in a while, you could see antlers, but most of the time, you couldn't see them. So the thing you had to do is you had to precisely figure where they were at. And I'd even draw maps on my hand. And I'd draw them sometimes on my glove, my shooting glove, so that I wouldn't miss them. Because once you got over there, you know, everything changed. And we done that. I mean, we done that so many times, blew walk by them and blow them out of there that it was just unreal because we would not hit the right spot where they was at. But the times that we hit the right spot, why well, we'd usually get some shooting in. And the other problem we'd run into is that when they came out of there, uh, they would hear you or you would get so close to them that they'd sense that something was wrong. And big bucks are just like any big animal, you know, they don't, wait around to see what happens they just come springing up out of there and they'll usually run 50 or 60 yards and then try to figure out what spooked them well when they come shooting up out of there you've got a pretty rough shot (laughs) (laughs) so we'd uh we'd get some fun shooting in but we'd miss them so many times and did you guys implement uh using hand signals from the leave a guy up top and help guide you in did that become part of the tactic at some point or yeah one of the things that that i came up with and i mainly came up with it for hunting bighorn sheep but we did use it all the time on the deer 
was I came up with a flagging system, real simple flagging system. And I used about a two foot square blaze orange or blaze red, uh, either one, uh, flag. And then about a two foot square of the, uh, blaze chartreuse. And we'd use the chartreuse for the animal and the blaze red or orange for the hunter. And you would just, I would just either put it on an arrow or cut a willow switch and tie it to that. And then I just came up with a set of cards with stick guys on it. And I would give a, a card to whoever we were hunting with and, and uh, say, hey, here's all you need to know. Up, <laughs> down, right, left. And, uh, with, and then just a, a simple wave of the flag if the animal was moving one direction or the other or waving the flag above you if the animal discovered something was wrong or just got up and laughed. And then the other the other thing that uh, I came up with shortly after that with the flag was dipping the two flags straight down below my waist, just dipping them down. And uh, uh, dipping both flags down would be 100 yards. And then when it got down under 100 yards, it would be just the one flag that would be every 10 yards. And so if you dipped it nine times, you were 90 yards, eight times, you were 80 yards. And now there's a bunch, a bunch of guys that that are using that system. And it just works so well, and it works so good on those deer, too, because you could have somebody stay back and watch exactly where the deer was at. Because it always changes so much when you circle around to come in on a deer or you circle around to get the wind perfectly, right? You get there, things don't look the same. And so it's very difficult to do that on your own, but it helps when there is uh, two people there to do it. And Judy and I, my wife, when she got to hunting with me after the kids got up a little bit, uh, her and I used that a lot. And, uh, we would, we would use it. We would use it for sheep hunting all the time. Uh, I flagged, uh, a bunch of guys in on that. I flagged Dwight Shoe in from two miles away on five or six rams. And when he finally discovered where the rams were at, he knew where they were at to begin with. But once he got over there, he couldn't tell. And when I got him down on the ram at 10 yards, uh, he had, he had come in by uh, using the flagging system. And the worst part with him is I couldn't get him to put an arrow. I motioned that he was 10 yards. He didn't put an arrow on the string and I'm frantically waving at him and hitting that one time down that he was 10 yards. And he finally put an arrow on the string just as the ram walked up within six or seven yards of him. Oh, so, <laughs> but the other big point that is so hard to get new guys to do or guys that have never done that before is I keep telling them, believe the flags because it's very, very difficult to get a new guy to believe what you're showing him. Right. You know, they don't want to believe, uh, what you're doing. And, and I kept saying, you've got to believe the flags. Okay, one, uh, just a good example of that was a real good friend of mine, uh, Dave Stone, uh, was up stalking above Timberline, above our cabin there, and I was helping him, and, and I was, I told him, I said, you get up there, and I told him, believe the flags. And so anyway, he was up on the side of the mountain right there, and some guys uh, scared these sheep 
he was sheep hunting. And uh, I was going to hunt some deer right there after he got done sheep hunting. And, but anyway, he was up on the side of the mountains, and he was probably a mile and a half away from me. And one of these rams came around and into this basin and laid down up in the rocks and some real rough stuff up against the back end of the basin. And I thought, boy, I've hiked up and down that before I know it's, I, that it can be done, even though it's really rough. And so I motioned for him to come around above him right on the top of this 13,000-foot peak. And he came around there, and then I stopped him and motioned down about 600 yards. And it was funny because another friend of mine was with him, and he said, Marv, he said, that's 900 yards. That isn't 600 yards. And I said, if I tell him 900 yards, he's not going to come down there. (laughs) (laughs) I said, if I tell him 600 yards, I might get him down there. (laughs) Well, he turned around and started to walk back the way he'd come. And I finally motioned with him to, uh, there, you know, with the, to stop and then motioned with him that there was a, a, with the animal, uh, flag that there was a sheep down there. And, uh, so he came back and I brought him down there and he had no idea where that sheep was at until he was again 10 yards away. And, uh, I motioned to him that he was 10 yards away and he put a straight arrow on there and he killed that ram. And I did the same thing with Marv Cochran, and uh, he was eight yards from the ram when he shot it. But it was funny because when Dave come back after the one that he started to quit on, I said, why did you Why did you go back? Why did you not just keep coming? He says, I looked down there, and I said, that damn Marv's trying to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> Looking down at him. And so he went back, and when he sat down and I motioned him to go back, he said, oh, Marv wouldn't try to kill me. And he walked back up there and came down on that ramp. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. <laughs> so that was really a good one. So but, uh, the one with yeah. Marv Cochran was the same way. Yet uh, he, I flagged him down. Jay Dart, you know who Jay Dart is, had the Dart system. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jay had a sheep permit and him and his wife and my wife and them were with me when I was flagging Marv in and, uh, Marv was good. I told him, believe the flags and he did. And, uh, he killed that ram uh, on his 16th day of hunting. Wow. Uh, and those, those deer were right there. And after those guys were gone, uh, Judy and I went up there and Judy flagged me into a buck up there. Uh, she didn't want to go in there because she had a hard time in that high brush because she's so short and she couldn't, uh, couldn't see those animals to shoot, you know? And she said, there was a snowstorm going on, one of those crazy snowstorms. And she said, you go up there and I'll flag you into those bucks. And she did. She flagged me right into the bucks. And, uh, I shot a real nice four point at about five or six yards in, in a and, snowstorm uh, on that one there. Yeah, in a, in a blinding snowstorm. <laughs> <laughs> and that was kind of a bad one there because, boy, I tell you what, I was not dressed for that storm. I, You know, it was still in September, early September, and I was not dressed for that thing. And by the time I stood there and, and watched those bucks when I got close to him and then finally killed him at uh, seven, six or seven yards, uh, I just decided to back out because it was getting dark too, and I knew he wouldn't go very far because I could see I hit him really good. 
And so I backed out and uh, hiked over to another road, and Judy come up and picked me up there, uh, which was quite a bit closer than where she was flagging me from. And I was really in a world of hurt by the time I got over there because I was soaking wet and colder than heck and everything. And so our, we went back to the cabin, and our son and his wife came up that night because he wanted to hunt elk. So him and I went back up there and onto the, that was right on the Continental Divide. I shot that buck within about 100 yards of the Continental Divide. And there was elk down below there uh, in the timber below. And so he went down to hunt those elk while I went to get that buck. And uh, there was five coyotes on that buck. And boy, they had just pretty well destroyed him. Mm. I probably only got about 20 pounds of meat off that buck. Are the predators, um, you guys don't have wolves in Colorado yet, right? But mountain lions and coyotes, are they? Not that we talk about. (laughs) Right. So. But coyotes, you know, there's coyotes everywhere. Yeah, okay. And And and, we have mountain lions, but, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about a mountain lion normally on a dead animal that you've shot because they like to kill their own animals. Okay. But occasionally young ones will get on, young cats will get on a dead animal, but most of the time they won't because they, they like to kill their own food. But right. the coyotes are just, you've really got to be careful with the coyotes. And if I, if I wouldn't have been so bad with the hypothermia, I could have went down because the buck only went about 50 yards. And all I'd have had to do was go down and touch him or put my coat on him or anything and the coyotes wouldn't have been there but i didn't think there was any problem with it okay but so i certainly was i've heard that the, so that works leaving some clothing behind with with an animal down oh, yeah. to keep the coyotes away yeah even if you handle them you know if you handle the animal at all and leave some scent on them those coyotes won't touch it but the best thing to do is just throw down a handkerchief or a uh, coat or anything i wasn't about to throw my coat i was dying as it was <laughs> right and, and so but, going back to uh, the flagging do you have uh a signal that says that the buck's bedded or the buck is up and feeding or how does that work n- n- no because we always we never hunt them until they're laying down and usually what happens, they'll lay down in that brush about 9.30, and then you've got till noon to uh, stalk them. And then they'll usually get up and they'll feed for 10, 15 minutes you know, or so and then lay back down again. That, that's almost a given with those big bucks, that they'll get up and feed just a little bit. And of course, if there's more than one, then you've got a problem because some will be up and some will be down and that. But uh, usually you've got till then to do it. And once they lay down again, then you've usually got till 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, and that works out good. And if we get into an area like that, if we happen to get in late and don't see any up feeding and move into another basin, usually by that time it's too late to see them up feeding. So we'll get as high as we can and take the spotting scopes and just start working back and forth through that brush. And usually we'll be able to find an antler. We'll be able to see an antler or something. And uh, if not, we just sit there and watch it until the evening, see if anything stands up. 
But so, so many times when we're looking for the spot and scope, we'll see an antler here, an antler there, and 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 sometimes they'll get up and turn around, or they'll get up and move a couple feet, you know, and uh, that that'll work there too. And so, if you find them in the evening, there's a good chance they'll be there in the morning. Oh yeah, if you don't spook them, and if if we've got enough daylight, which a lot of times we will. Uh, we'll get after them right then. We'll we'll move in on them right then. But uh, that flagging, and I can email you guys uh, those cards on that flagging. Yeah, that'd be uh, awesome. just so you can see what they are. Uh, yeah. But those that flagging system works so well, and uh, I'll never forget uh, the 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 young fellow was with, with me when I was flagging Dave, and he said he's nine hundred yards. He took the flag. I gave him a set of the cards, and he took it, and he added about six or seven things to it. And everybody that I talked to that hunted with him said, God, that's so confusing. We don't know how you use that. (laughs) (laughs) I said, I don't use that. He does. (laughs) Yeah, you got to keep it simple. That's for sure. Yeah, keep it simple, definitely. So what are... It really is simple, yeah. What are some of the other tactics uh, along the way? I mean, it sounds like you, obviously you're going to blow a lot of stocks to to hone your skills along the way. But are there some little tidbits of things that you learned that you know made these stocks more successful as time progressed? Yeah, uh, one of the things that we found, of course, we wear face masks. You know, the, I, to me, that the face mask and hand covers the most important thing in the world. I wrote uh, wrote an article sometime about, and I have it in one of the programs that I give at these banquets, and that I have a set of black and white photos that show with and without the face mask and the uh, hand covers, you know, the gloves. And it's just like you're waving a white flag at them. You know, we're so white that uh, it it's just unbelievable how much difference there is. But one of the things that I found is that if you are moving in on them and one of them happens to stand up and see you moving, I have, I have sit there for sometimes over an hour without moving and they'll just keep staring at you. And then they'll start that jerking away and jerking back, looking at you. And if you can stand it, uh, they will usually, you'll usually out, outdo them, uh, if they don't catch you moving again, but boy, the worst thing you can do is duck down. They see you duck down your history. There's just no question about that. Those big bucks will head out of there so quick if they see you duck down. And we learned that in a hurry, you know, we'd duck down and then we'd get back up and look and they'd be gone. They'd be on the side of the basin. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one thing you definitely can't do. One of the other things that we found, and, and of course, most of this was, uh, was with me and the kids or Judy is that because we hunted together all the time and just off and on, I would hunt with some other guys. I hunted with Charlie a lot until, uh, the, my farmer friend down the road here until he got to be a game warden and they moved him over to Meeker, Colorado. And of course that split us up from hunting so much together. But, uh, the other thing is that we noticed right away is that if you got into a lot of that brush, you couldn't get to those deer. They would be out in the middle of that brush in the, in the cool spots. You'd look for a, the darkest green of the brush pile 
And that's where they're going to be because that dark green means that it's deep. And sometimes they'd be down in there seven and eight feet deep. And, of course, there's no way you can get to them in that brush because if you start trying to move through that brush, that stuff's just a tangle, you know. Sometimes there'll be trails in there, but even then, where the trails go in and out of it, uh, a human can't do it without making noise. You know, we wear wool clothes you know, when we're doing that, but even then, you just can't do it without making noise, and uh, they, they're they out of there in a hurry. So one of the things that we would do there is if we, we saw one where we could see there was a trail going either side out, which there always is, or where we'd think that they would go in and out of, uh, we would try to get one person on one side of them and then the other person come in on them. And uh, hopefully somebody would get a shot. And we killed a few bucks doing that. Uh, we blew a lot more out that we didn't, but we did uh, We did kill a few bucks doing that too. So I, th- I think, you know, the, the whole thing with me was the hunting. You know, the killing was just gravy. Yeah, you know, and I probably said this in the last uh, podcast that we did there, is that my whole thing with hunting is getting close to animals. And that's one reason that I hunt with the bow and hunt with traditional equipment is because if I kill one, that's just gravy. You know, there's no question about that, just icing on the cake. But my whole thing is getting close to those animals. And I've always figured that when we were hunting those big bucks, which happens to be my favorite animal, that's for sure, is if they got away from me, they deserved it. And uh, (laughs) it was still a very, very successful hunt if I got within 20 yards or under of them and didn't take one. And I think the best example of that is after our oldest boy, Todd, who is a very, very successful hunter too, uh, after he got to hunting with me a lot, we hunted that high country, uh, him and I blew it on a couple of really big bucks one day uh, up in the high country above our cabin. And we sit down there and we were laughing about, you know, how we got so close to those bucks. We both got shots and we both missed because they just come flying out of there. And uh, we were sitting there talking and reminiscing about that and having a candy bar. And I said, uh, how many, how many times in the last three or four years do you think we've done this on bucks and not got a shot? And he, we sit there and we discuss it a little bit. And we figured that on the hunts that we had been on together on those, that I had killed a buck and he had killed a buck out of 90 stocks. Wow. <laughs> so That's awesome. That That's was, uh, we, were, we were making those kind of stocks uh, in, in those seasons because there were so many deer. And that was, so we were blowing it on, on that. 90 stocks? Are that's like how many how many stocks a day would you say you're getting? Oh, sometimes we were doing three and four stocks a day up there. Okay, you know, but this and, was over a period of years that right. uh, we had done that. So, but if, uh, yeah, if, I, I can remember Charlie Reichert and I. In fact, we were talking about that yesterday when he was here. That uh, on that one basin up there. I think we probably made in that daytime, we probably made at least 20, maybe 21 stocks just that one day. 
Okay, wow. So are there you able to blow a stock and have the guy that's watching relocate the deer and go after those same bucks again later in the day? No. No, they either hit the timber or they leave the basin. There's there's no way that you're going to. I've seen those bucks get up and go completely over the continental divide uh, several thousand feet above us when you spook them out of those basins. And they won't come back. Usually it takes four or five days to a week for but they'll come back in there. Wow. They will usually come back, but uh, it usually takes quite a bit of time. But uh, they'll, they'll, a lot of the times they'll go up over top of Ridge and go into the next basin, and then we'll go over there and catch them again there. Okay. Uh, but usually you have to give them plenty of time to lay down, that's for sure. So the, uh, but that, you know, when you figure that we're doing that kind of stalking to kill, and after that we may have killed the next two deer we stalked on, and we may have killed one deer after that that we stalked on, but that was just what happened up to that point. And, in fact, it was kind of funny because I think it was the next day. It was either the next day or the next weekend. We went back into, uh, the, I think it was the next, uh, the next w- uh, weekend. We went back into the, just the next little basin over from where that happened. And uh, th- there was four or five bucks in there. And I ended up killing a real big buck in there that day. Todd missed his. <laughs> he was so mad. He so, missed that buck at about 10 or 12 yards. So can you give us that story, like how that, uh, how that buck, uh, how that unfolded and how you were able to find success on that stock? Yeah, that was, that was kind of one of the, one of the funnest ones that we've ever had. And what happened is we, uh, a, a friend of ours had told us about this area because uh, it was north of our cabin, about 15, 20 miles. And a friend of ours had told us that he was sheep hunting up there and saw some bucks. And so I said, you know, let's go over there. We'd blow it out of this other basin. I said, let's go over there and, and uh, uh, hunt that basin. So we hunted the one and blew them out of there. And then I said, let's just go to the next one and see what happens. Well, we went in there early that morning. There was an old mining road running up there, and it was blocked off. So you couldn't get on it except to hike. And we walked up this uh, road just at daylight, Todd and I did. And we got up there to where we could see the brush, where I, where we were at. And we glassed and glassed and kept moving ahead and moving ahead and glass and everything. And we were seeing some deer, but nothing that we really wanted to shoot, some small bucks, does and that. And then we got up there to where we could see the major part of the high part of this basin up where the the brush ended. And we were on two big rocks with our spotting scopes, and and uh, I spotted some bucks up there. There was a power line running across that basin and up over the Continental Divide. And I told Todd, I said, there's some bucks up there by that power line. So he came and looked, and he said, boy, Dad, that one's a big one. And I said, not only that one. I said, look to the left of them. There's two more over there, and there's two big ones. And just about that time, Todd got up and he, and, uh, he turned around, he looked back down the road and here come two guys walking up the road and they were compound shooters, but you know, they were, they were hunting too, and they had a right to be in there. And so I told Todd, I said, you stay here. I said, I'm going to go back down there and talk to those guys so they don't blow our, our uh, chance at those deer. And now these bucks are probably a mile away, at least a mile, maybe a mile and a quarter away. 
And I said, you watch those bucks and don't let them, don't let them lay down without you seeing them. So he stayed there and I walked back down and these guys were really, really nice guys. And the one guy said, Oh, I know you from a friend of mine. And he said, I think the same friend told you about these bucks as told me. And I said, you know, we talked about him and it was, it was the same guy. And so we talked a little bit and he said, you guys seeing and everything. And I said, yeah, we've got some big bucks up here that we're going to stock on. And, uh, he said, do you mind if we look at them? And I said, no, come on. I said, let's just sneak up there. And so we snuck up there and, and, uh, we put, uh, Todd still had them in the spot and scope and they were still feeding and they both looked in there and said, there's no deer in there. And I said, you guys are looking for elephants. You got to be looking for mice. <laughs> and I told them exactly where the bucks is at. And I said, now look in there. And I said, look for something as tiny as a mice. They're so far away. And he looked in there and all of a sudden he just went crazy because he seen one of them. He said, oh my God. He said, those things are so small up there. He said, I can't believe how little they are. <laughs> and we got a kick out of that. So they told us that they would stay there. And I said, now, let me tell you something that's going to happen. I said, we're going to go up there and we're going to blow those bucks out of there. If we get extremely lucky, we can only kill two out of the five. And I said, you guys go across this basin to the south here. Get in that part of the draw on the other side and, and just find yourself spots. Get one of you on each side of the draw. And I said, when we spook this buck, that's where they're going to come. I said, they're going to come down that draw. So they said, okay, because they said they wouldn't go up there for one of those bucks. We said, they said, we ain't about to go up there and hike up there for, a, I don't care how big he is. So we laughed about that. So then Todd and I let him lie down. We sent those guys across over there, and we started up there, and we got in right on top of those bucks. And they came out of there again, and, and Todd didn't get a shot, but I did, and I missed him. And they went over the over the kind of a little hump right there and into that draw that these guys were on and went right down the draw. So we ran over to that draw and uh, got behind a couple of rocks and watched them. And of all the crazy things, those two guys got up on the side of the draw just wide open. They didn't hide. They didn't do nothing. And those bucks ran down there and saw those two guys. And two of the bucks went straight up over the top. They went over a 13,000-foot peak. Two of them turned around and came right back up that draw. Well, we had now moved, oh, probably a quarter of a mile or so from where we had spooked them from. So we got down there. We're behind these two big rocks, and we're watching them. And I, I was uh, Todd was probably 20 yards from me. And I said, Todd, those suckers are coming right for us. I said, get ready. So he got between these two big rocks and I got behind this other rock and I told him, I said, don't take your eyes off him. Well, he did. And this one buck walked up uh, the side of the hill there, trotted, walked, trotted and walked up and looked right down on him from about six feet away in this rock because he could see his bow moving. And he walked up there, and he looked right on that. Yeah, I guess he thought it was an antler or something, and, of course, blew out of there. And I was laying beside this rock watching him, and Todd jumped up, and the other buck come up beside him, and he missed him. But the one that he spooked to begin with came by me at about, oh, I don't know, less than five yards. 
and I didn't even draw the bow all the way back. I let him get by me just so he wouldn't turn, and I shot him right through the side at about four or five yards. And he went on. He went down over the hill, and I seen him go down about fifty yards from me. That's all he went, and I saw him go down. Well, these guys are watching this whole thing <laughs> because they 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 could just look up there with their binoculars and see this. And <laughs> Todd got up, and oh, he was mad. He was mad. He said, "What happened, Dad? What happened?" And I said, "Well, that buck come right by me." He said, "Did you get a shot at him?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "Did you kill him?" And I said, "Yeah." <laughs> and of course that took all the edge off of him miss him so he came up there and we walked over there and these guys saw, could see the buck and they could see us walk over to the buck and here they came and they hiked all the way up there and they were so excited over watching me shoot that buck and they said we thought that buck was going to run over you well, we took a bunch of pictures and everything, and they said, well, we're going to help you pack this buck out of here, Marv. This, the, you deserve to walk out of here without packing that buck. And I says, hey, I don't care. <laughs> so we boned the buck out, taped him out, got him on Todd's backpack and mine, because all these guys had with day packs. They didn't have backpacks. We do not go into that country without backpacks. And everybody says, well, why do you take your backpack? And I says, because I'm going to kill some." And I don't want to walk clear back to the rig and get a backpack to take him out of there. So anyway, we boned these, this deer out and caped him out and cut the horns off and everything. And we put them on Todd's pack and mine. So this guy says, well, I'm taking your pack, Marv. And I said, hey, that's wonderful. I said, you can do it. I'll bet we didn't go 150 yards. And he says, Marv, he said, I can't carry this. <laughs> I said, here, give me my pack. <laughs> <laughs> now i'm i'm uh at that time i was probably 60 years old and this guy's like 25 <laughs> he, was, he was so embarrassed he said you know he said and we they walked together with us and we hiked out there about i don't know five or six miles down to the rig and he was so embarrassed he said i can't believe that you do that and i can't <laughs> <laughs> I told him that's the difference between the way we hunt. Yeah, that's for sure. But it was a, it's an awesome hunt, and especially to have those guys see that. And uh, but he's again when we got out of there, he said, "I'll never hunt that high country again." He said, "That's just too mean." <laughs> and I told Todd, "Good." <laughs> uh, Shut those awesome. guys off. Uh, what what pack are you? Did you start with, and what are you using now? And like, how has that evolved as far as equipment and gear goes? Uh, well, I I have a lot of arguments with people over this, but when uh, Ed and I did that first sheep hunt up in uh, George in that country high above Georgetown, there we uh, I had a, a military pack, and uh, Ed had just a day pack that he was using. I had one of those old wood military packs. I don't know if you guys have seen that. You're probably too young. <laughs> <laughs> but they were they were a wood frame with a, a, a canvas pack on them. And I was carrying that thing, and we were up there scouting just before that sheep season opened. And here come this guy hiking up through there, and he had a real nice aluminum frame pack on and we stopped and talked with him, and he was a guard at the prison in Canyon City, and he hiked this country all the time, hunted it. And uh, I kept looking at that pack, and he said, uh, 
I noticed you looking at my pack, and I said, boy, that's a nice pack. And he said, yeah, it's a Kelly. And I'd never heard of it. And uh, he said, it's the only pack to have. He said, there's no other pack that's worth even having. And he showed it to us, and he said, he put me on his back. And now I weighed 210 pounds. And he put me on his back. I held on to that thing, and he walked around in a little circle there. And I told Ed when I got home, I said, I'm going to own one of them. And uh, I did. When I came back home, I bought that Kelly pack in, uh, at the end of that 1961. And I'm still using the Kelly pack today, the same packs. I've destroyed a couple of them. Uh, I didn't. A bear did one. <laughs> <laughs> we, we were packing out an animal up there at the cabin and we got back to the cabin. It was with Jay Dart. It was Jay's sheep. And uh, I got him into a ram, and, and uh, he killed that uh, big ram down there. And we got back to the cabin that night, and Judy said, you better put that pack inside the cabin. And I said, ah, the damn thing's all bloody. And I said, it stinks. And I said, I'm going to put it out here on the – she says, I'm telling you. And I didn't listen <laughs> <laughs> we get up the next morning, her and I, real early, and she goes out down to the outhouse. And I walk out, and she says, Marvin, where's your pack? And it wasn't there. And I started looking around, and a dang bear had got a hold of that pack and took it down into the edge of the trees right below the cabin there and just destroyed that pack. He bent the frame and chewed, it for, chewed the pack all up. And so I went ahead and got another one. And I would buy those things at uh, garage sales and where in a flea market. I bought a couple, and the kids all use them, and the kids still use them too. And uh, it's kind of funny because Jason from Kuya, he said, "You've got to have one of my new packs." And I just, I said, "Nah, I keep with my old Kelly." <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I have packed a lot, a lot of game out on those things, and. And one of the things that I do, I don't know if we discussed this the last time, but one of the things that I do, if I happen to be by myself, or if we get an elk and there's just two of us, one of the things that I do is I bone them completely out, get it all set up there so we can bring them out, and then I'll carry that animal 200 yards or 300 yards and unload the pack right there, go back and get another load and ferry it that way and when i bring the second one up to the first 200 yard one i go another 200 yards without unloading two or 300 yards and i ferried an elk out like that it took quite a while to get it out you know there's no question about that it takes a lot of time to do that but the thing that happens is you're three four miles away from where you shot an animal and you carry that thing clear out to the rig and you look back up there, there's nothing, nothing that blows your mind worse than to look up there and think, oh, my God, i got to go back there two or three <laughs> more times. But if you ferry that thing, it takes basically the same amount of time. In fact, I think it takes less time. But you don't have to look back and say, I've got to go back there to do that. You only got- have to go back 400 yards, see? I've got uh, my brother-in-law. They use a similar system when they're packing elk out of a wilderness. One guy will take it so far, and the other guy will grab that pack and take off with it. One guy will move, you know, 
four the the four packs that couple hundred yards or whatever it is the distance and the other guy will move it and they just keep you know jump frogging it back to the truck yeah and that's basically what i'm doing see is there any, but uh, a lot of times it's by myself and uh, i did that with do i choose sheep because uh, he was here i think for 14 or 15 days before we killed that sheep and he was in a world of hurt. His knees were hurting him and his hip was hurting him. And, uh, so I packed that sheep of his out by myself and uh, I took it up over top of a, about a 13,000 foot, uh, ridge. And uh, I, that's what I did is I'd carry it part way and then I'd go back and get some, then I'd carry it part way up. And, we, and I only did that two times. And uh, took it to the top of that ridge, and then took it down the other side in two more times. And but uh, it just it just beats the heck out of the mind game. Is what you're doing. You're just right. beating the mind game. Right. It's the same amount of work, yeah. but 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 you're you're not. Uh, and and also, I think when you're you got that adrenaline going, getting that you know that tough part of the pack. Uh, why you have that. Uh, you know, that adrenaline going probably helps too. getting them, uh, to, uh, to the trail or to whatever, wherever. Oh, you bet. Yeah. There's no, no question about that. And, uh, I did that with Judy's brother once on an elk that I shot way, way back in up here by, uh, just above us. And I mean, I was up over the top of 12 and a half thousand feet and down in the other side a mile and a half when I shot this bull. And he came up onto the top of that ridge, and I could see him up there. So I kind of hiked up to where I could holler at him. And he was one of these guys. He wasn't about to come down there and help me. There's no way he was going to help me. And so I hollered up there, and I said, uh, come down here. And he said, I ain't coming down there. And I said, I find a bunch of old mining equipment. <laughs> and I said, you need to look at this mining equipment. <laughs> and I got him down there. And he says, where's this mining equipment? And I said, laying right there. And it was my elk. Oh, God, he was mad. <laughs> but so, so there's, then he helped me pack some it your, out. <laughs> so some of your tactics are actually just tricks. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> that one was. <laughs> and he, he would never hunt with me again. That was the last time he ever hunted with me. <laughs> that's great. Uh, that's oh, awesome. geez. So you got to have a little fun with this hunting, you know. Heck so yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. You're, you're using horseback sometimes it sounds like, and it sounds like there's a lot of camping in the cabin. Um, are you doing any, are you staying overnight at, uh, above timberline? Is there some bivvying going on? Um, how often are the horses used, you know, maybe speak to that. We don't, I, I haven't used horses in years. You know, I was born and raised around horses and had them all my life. And all I can say is that horses are trouble. <laughs> they are more trouble than you can shake a stick at, especially hunting. You know, they're always getting loose or they won't pack an animal or a bear gets on it and they can smell that bear or something. So we quit using them quite a few years ago. And uh, I've got a real good friend that uses uh, mules now. And I would, go, I would do it if I were going back. I would use mules. But we've just got to the point where we backpack everything. And uh, uh, our youngest son and I did that a number of times on elk, and we've done it on sheep and big bucks. We'll take those bivy sacks and just put them on our back, take enough food for 
three or three days or whatever, two or three days. And we'll get into those deer and those elk and we'll just, uh, take those bivy sacks and, and, uh, stay wherever we're at that night. Yeah. We take a bunch of pine boughs and cut them and put them down on the ground. Of course, now the do-gooders will scream at you for cutting the pine boughs off the trees, and, <laughs> <laughs> but they, they make a good cushion yeah. and we'll just lay there. We'll take a light sleeping bag and. And those bivy bags, and I've got, I think, three of those bivy bags, and they really work well. They work real well. Yeah, that's okay. awesome. So we've done. So how are the mule deer? I'm, how are the mule deer doing over there now, Marv? I mean, I know we're talking. Um, you, you've those you know, are the glory days, and you've been able to keep doing well over the years. So there's obviously, you know, the hunting's still good there. Maybe you can speak on that a little bit. And I know you guys had a pretty rough winter not this year, but last year, and maybe how they're doing after that? Well, you know, as once we got that, uh, uh, number one, they killed too many deer in this state back in the 70s. You know, they would have some of those seasons that were you could take three deer, and that was a huge, huge mistake. But the biggest problem came when we got the uh, uh, CWD showed up in these animals. And the Game and Fish Department panicked, the cities and the counties panicked, and they just slaughtered the deer trying to stop that CWD because they thought that it was going to affect people. Well, we've been eating that stuff for 50 years, they finally discovered, and it never bothered anybody. And they wiped out the deer in this state. They just literally wiped the deer out of this state. Well, it took years and years for them to start coming back and they are coming back i've talked to guys quite a bit uh that they're seeing a lot more deer in the meeker country and the peans country that was our major deer areas the areas that i hunt above timberline weren't uh are not quite as bad there's nowhere near the amount of deer there but we'll still find a few big bucks here and there and uh i think it was uh uh Seven years ago, uh, I was up in uh, the area above uh, the Keystone Ski Area, and that was an area that you could draw a permit on a second or a third choice every year, and that's what I was on. I was on a, a second or a third choice permit because uh, nobody put in for those areas. They just weren't seeing the, the deer, you know, and I knew some spots way up in there from when we were goat and sheep hunting that I had seen some deer. And I went up there, uh, uh, I, the guy, uh, I had been hunting with a friend of mine and then Todd and I went up there and, and of course they had to work, you know, during the week. So I would go hunting while they had to work and <laughs> <laughs> I could spend some time with Judy and the kids at home on weekends. But I went up there, uh, on, I think that was a Monday morning. And I told Judy, I said, I'll, I'll call you that night if I'm going to stay up there. And uh, luckily, we had cell phones by then, and I she gave me one so I could call her. But anyway, I went up there, and and I went to the end of this old mining road where I could look up into this basin, and there's a huge, huge basin. And there were two 14,000-foot peaks on the north side of this basin, and then the brush went to about, oh, I think that high brush was about 12,900, uh, somewhere in there. Uh, 12,800 something, or 850, I mean. And it's somewhere in that vicinity, that 12,800 foot is what it showed on the, on the map. But anyway, uh, 
I got up there early that morning and uh, I saw some deer, but I didn't see anything that I would go after. I saw some little bucks and that, and I thought, boy, this area has got to have a big buck in it. So I went and uh, I hiked into another area and looked it all over and found some sign and that uh, did a little arrowhead hunting and found a couple arrowheads and <laughs> clear up above timberline. Wow. But at any rate, uh, I came back that evening to the end of this road and I'm looking up there and I, it's getting late and I thought, boy, I'm going to show up. They're going to have to do it quick. And about that time, the very last patch of brush, I saw a doe stand up and start feeding out down the hill. And so I'm watching her, and I'm watching her and glancing across, and all of a sudden I see this nice buck stand up up there just a little bit to the right of her. And, boy, I, I never even took a second look at him. I just grabbed my pack and my bow and headed up there, and I had probably a half to – three quarters of a mile to go before I was into that same patch of brush. And then maybe another three or 400 yards to get to where I thought he was at. And there was a uh, kind of a, a draw running up through there and he was feeding in that draw on that brush. And there was a pile of white rocks on the north side on the left side of him. And I thought if I could get to that pile of rocks, I may get a shot at him. So I hustled up there and, and I dropped my pack below that, uh, probably 40 or 50 yards off to the side of that white rocks and got an arrow on the string and I snuck up there and I looked there and he was feeding about 15 yards below me, broadside. And when I came up to shoot, he saw that top of that longbow, I guess. And he jumped just as I shot, and I'm going, oh, my God, I can't believe I missed that sucker at 15 yards. And he just barreled into the brush, and then he barreled out into that uh, open grassy area that I had come up. And he went about 70 yards and then just a, took a 90-degree dive back into the brush. And I seen him come up on his back legs and completely spin around drop over dead. And I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. I just killed that buck. <laughs> and I just couldn't believe it. And I went down there. I looked for the arrow, and the, the arrow went completely through him. And I looked for the arrow, and, of course, it went out into the brush. And I, so I walked down there, and I, I always like to follow the blood trail no matter what, just to look at it, see what it is and everything. And I didn't even get started on that blood trail. And I said, man, you got to back out. I looked down on my pants and my bow and everything was just covered with blood. So I backed out and I just walked down there. And what had happened is when he took that first leap from seeing that uh, bow, instead of me hitting him right through the heart and the lungs where it should have been, I hit him through the liver, clear back. And, uh, boy, that did the job on him, though. It put him down in a hurry, that's for sure. So I and was this... pretty excited about that. He he was another real good buck, and so I'm. You guys get a kick out of this. If somebody <laughs> would have been watching me, they'd have thought that I was a nut up there. I'm standing there, jumping up and down, and singing "Happy Birthday" to myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that is so awesome, Marv! Seventieth seventieth birthday. That is just 
Incredible. Yeah, that was my 70th birthday. And so now I'm two and a half miles above the rig there. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, I could have cared less. I had plenty. Of, I still had another hour. So I, uh, I took a bunch of pictures of him and, and, uh, with him and, and, uh, I took those pictures so you could see down that valley. And that's one of the prettiest valleys. It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous valley. And I took those pictures uh, so you could see down that valley and the mountains behind it. And I went ahead and, and, uh, and just, uh, uh, gutted him out and spread him out there. And of course, doing that, keep the coyotes away from him. And I knew they wouldn't touch him then. And, so I went down to, uh, I had to drive about 20 miles down into, uh, Silverthorne, that little town of Silverthorne. And, and, uh, I called Judy and she says, are you coming home? And I said, yeah, tomorrow, probably about noon. And she said, what'd you see? And I said, well, I saw one good buck. And I said, he's a pretty nice one. And she says, well, are you going to try for him in the morning? And I said, yeah, he's laying on the ground up there. Got it. <laughs> she got the biggest <laughs> kick out of it. So I told her I was going into a restaurant there and have a celebratory meal. <laughs> oh, that is so So I awesome. went back the next day, and uh, I went back the next day, and I did the same thing there. I just pack him 200 yards and then go back and get more and then pack him 200 yards until I got him out. But uh, I was still so high on the hog, I probably could have brought him out in one shot. But <laughs> <laughs> Now, what, is your birthday, is that fall in August or September? Yeah, the 31st of August, and it op- usually opens the week, uh, that weekend, you know, of uh, the last, it o- always opens the last Saturday of August. Yeah, that's so and, cool. Uh, like so birthday, that's, a birthday buck, uh, that's, I mean, it's hard to beat that. Yeah, and that's I, the way I wrote about it for traditional, uh, traditional Bow Hunter magazine, and I wrote about it as the, the birthday buck. And <laughs> yeah, my, my birthday so falls. My birthday falls October 28th, and so um, when I can draw a special um, blacktail tag, I'm always wanting to sit in the, in the tree stand hoping for that birthday buck opportunity. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, and you know what's crazy is that's the only animal that I've ever killed on my birthday. I've killed them one day ahead of time and one day of <laughs> behind yeah. it, but that's the only one I've ever got on my birthday. So I missed a few. When did they? When did they um, shed their velvet in the high country? You know, they usually don't shed their that velvet until about the uh, second to the third week in September. Okay. So we can usually get those bucks down. Um, a lot of the bucks that I have killed, in fact, the majority of those bucks that I've killed have been uh, in the velvet. Okay. And uh, I'll kill one once in a while later in the season, but usually we we get them. Uh, they've got the velvet on. Do you do you find that the bucks that are living at lower elevations shed earlier? You know, I'd have a hard time telling you that just because I don't hunt lower elevations. Right. You know, I probably have not hunted below timberline. Uh, I guess probably since the early seventies because. At that time, we could buy an archery uh, permit for deer, and then we could also buy a rifle permit, and I would hunt during the rifle season. So sometimes I'd kill three deer a year, you know, because you could kill a couple, sometimes four of them, because you could kill them during the 
the rifle, you could kill some of those late seasons. You could kill three deer during the are rifle you, season. Are you pursuing but, whitetails or mule deer at all in November during the rut, or that's just not something that you do? Uh, the, all the whitetail hunting I do is, uh, I killed one in Colorado, uh, in 1977, I think. And then I started hunting Nebraska. I started hunting with Lyle Prell, who passed away some years ago. And, uh, he wanted me to come over and hunt with him. And then I, I started moving back towards Colorado border because it was just too far to go to North Platte. But, uh, I hunted over there for about 33 or 34 years on uh, a big ranch right close to Lake McConaughey. And uh, I killed a lot of whitetails. I think I killed about 30 whitetails on that place because I was the only one hunting. And uh, boy, there it was really, really good hunting there. But And I still go over there, but not very often because they have, you know, they have that blue tongue come through there and wipe those deer out. I still turkey hunt there. I okay. turkey hunt there every spring, but uh, boy, they lost just tons and tons of deer there. But that occurs after our season. See, when I hunt here, so there's nothing here to hunt. It's right. after the bow seasons are over. So I usually go over there. Uh, I like to go over there about the second and the third week of October in that pre-rut because it seems like that's the most, the best time to uh, rattle and call those bucks is right. before that main part of the rut starts. And so how many uh, high country meal deer do you suppose you've taken? Oh, God. A, a number of people have asked me that, and I just, I think probably 50 to 55. Okay. Somewhere in there. And, of course, all of those are not big bucks, you know, by any means. Sure. I've probably taken a dozen or so, you know, maybe 14 but big bucks. And, and it but, sounded like uh, the, the sheep, the sheep hunting was a lot more available back in the day. Have you taken quite a few of the sheep? Well, uh, I I've t- only taken one ram in Colorado. It took me 101 days to kill that ram uh, <laughs> of sheep hunting. But at that time, see, there was no sheep in Colorado. I okay. mean, I, I we hunted the first. Uh, let's see, I think we hunted the first two times or the first three times up there never seen a sheep and uh they would maybe kill one with the rifle and there'd be you know a dozen hunters in there and uh, there just wasn't any sheep at that time and i think the first uh denny being killed the first ram with a bow in 1973 after i had got a uh, bow season in colorado for sheep because nobody had hunt them uh, they just didn't think you could kill a sheep with a bow. And, uh, but I went, I was so into that sheep hunting by then I talked the game and fish department had given us a season. And I think I ended up killing the fifth or the sixth somewhere in there ram that was taken with a bow. So in Colorado, uh, 101 days pursuing uh bighorn. Uh, could you, you know, give us a, a little rundown on that? I mean, that sounds pretty extensive. Well, it, at that time it wasn't, see, because the the licenses were twenty five bucks, <laughs> right. and you could get one every other year. You were you were almost guaranteed. In fact, you were until the mid nineteen seventies. You were guaranteed a license every other year because nobody had hunted. 
I mean, even the rifle hunters wouldn't, wouldn't hunt those sheep because they were so hard to hunt and there were so few of them. And now my hunting buddy that I hunted with the whole time for sheep, uh, he killed, he was a rifle hunter, my cousin, and, uh, Ed killed his ram on the fifth permit that we had with a rifle. And I think he had hunted about 48, 49 days before he killed that with a rifle. Man. Okay. And that particular year down at Pike's peak, uh, we drew at Pike's peak and, uh, I, I missed the ram real close then. And, uh, it, it it just was one of those deals where I didn't see a ram off to my side, and he spooked him just as I shot, and he wasn't there when the arrow got there. But uh, I passed up one ram there that was questionable, and I just uh, the game warden said, "Oh, you should have shot him," and I said, nah, "I just if he wasn't legal, I wasn't taking that chance, you know." And he said, "Oh, I wouldn't have cared. We need his sheep out of there." But you know, that doesn't make it legal as far as I'm concerned. Right. And, uh, but the, the problem was they just, that there just was no sheep at that time. And of course I missed a few too later on, uh, down at our cabin, uh, where I finally killed the ram. And, uh, we, uh, another fellow that I hunted with a good friend that I hunted with him and I killed two sheep the second of the last day of the season within a couple of hours of each other. And what happened is uh, right where Dwight Shoe killed that ram, uh, I killed mine just uh, four or 500 yards over the hill from his, but of course in 1977. But uh, uh, I shot that ram and I, and I had to follow him into the basin and he went down in a uh, uh, kind of a washout, just a small one where the water had washed down there probably two feet wide and three feet deep. And I walked up behind him and shot him again. But when I was coming in on him, uh, I saw a trail there that had a real, real fresh sheep track on it. And it went up uh, over the top of them, kind of a little bit of a bluff behind me. And there was a little bitty lake up there, and there was sheep watered at that lake. And Spence was watching me stalk this ram and shoot him again. And, of course, I shot him and killed him right there. And then he came down. And I told him, I said, Spence, I said, get up there and hike up that trail right quick. And I said, get up on that top. I said, there's a ram right up in there somewhere. There's a fresh track right there. And he went up there and looked over and that ram was about 15 yards away drinking out of that stream and he's or out of that little tiny pond. And he shot him. So we killed those two rams right together. And he had been hunting, I think 40 or 45 days too. Wow. So, uh, that was kind of a lucky deal. We got into him there. And then, of course, I, uh, then they started that deal. Uh, at that time, there was getting to be enough people that you couldn't draw that permit like that. And they started, uh, you, uh, you had to wait five years after you killed one. And then you started accumulating points, which took three before you was in there. So it was actually the ninth year after that before you could even put in. And uh, I started putting in for desert sheep then, which you can't put in for both. You can't put in for bighorns and desert sheep at the same time. And I started putting in that desert uh, because I wanted to get, try to get a desert. And, uh, and, of course, in the meantime, I killed a stone sheep in British Columbia and a doll sheep in Alaska. And still can't draw that uh, desert permit. But this is the year. This is the year I'm going to draw. 
<laughs> we've so. got our I, I yeah, we've got our, yeah we got our fingers crossed for you that would be that'd be spectacular <laughs> i uh i say that every year but uh, after i drew that moose permit last year i feel i'm lucky so <laughs> um, so anyway why are is uh todd your son is he still bow hunting with you oh yeah 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 he's still hunting quite a bit he killed uh, a moose uh, three years ago, just two years before, let's see, in 2015. Yeah, he killed his in 2015, and he also killed a big whitetail out in eastern Colorado. He drew a eastern Colorado whitetail permit, and he killed a real nice whitetail out there in 2015. And then he killed that moose uh, in 2015, too, and uh, that, that just such a tremendous bull it was just unbelievable it's 51 inches for a shirus moose right above us here wow so and he killed him in the same area that i killed mine this last year is he using uh the so, same equipment uh, same equipment that you're hunting with yeah yeah he shot it shot them both for the longbow and all the kids do all the grandkids are well one of them is shooting a recurve a bighorn recurve. Jeremiah shoots bighorn recurve, but all the other, all the other grandkids and uh, the kids all shoot longbows. Well, we would we would love the opportunity to uh, talk to your son Todd uh, if if you could set that up. Uh, that would be great. Oh yeah, he'd do that. He, him, and I became the first father son regular members of Pope and Young Club, and then him and I and Judy became the first. Uh, man, wife, and son to become regular members of Pope and Young Club, and um, of course now we're all senior members. So, are you? Are you? Uh, uh, well, I should say. Are you attending Compton's uh, uh, gathering this year? You know, I don't know. Uh, Judy just had a shoulder replacement, and uh, so I've really been taking care of her a lot, and I will until she heals up. You know, so I'm. I'm not sure if I will or not. I, I don't know if I'll make that or not. Cool. It's far enough away that we've got plenty of time, you know. Right. I'm not going to go to the, the Classic in Pennsylvania for sure. Okay. Uh, that's in a couple of weeks here, I think. Okay, so what is their, but, uh, what's, what's their next? Uh, we're, we're new members um, to Compton's. What is the uh, next uh, gathering that they have after the one in Pennsylvania? It'll be the the rendezvous in Berrien Springs, Michigan, and you okay. guys have got to go to that. <laughs> okay. You got to go to that. That thing is so big; it's just it's incredible how big it is. You know, they'll have seven or eight thousand shooters at that thing. Wow! And is that I mean, it in is huge. June, July? Yeah, it's the uh, uh, usually right around Father's Day in July in June. I mean, it's the third okay. week in June. Okay. Awesome. And uh, the uh, the vendors, uh, uh, the, they've got so big that the vendors tent is 120 feet long and 60 or 80 feet wide, and then there'll be another uh, personal tents of the vendors, another 30 or so set up outside. Okay. That that's how big that thing has got got well, to be. But it's I, a ball. It's I'm thinking. I'm thinking we need to uh, petition the state of Colorado for all that you've done for them to just 
sign you over a desert bighorn tag. I think I think they owe it to you, Mark. <laughs> now I will I will go along with that. <laughs> <laughs> so listeners uh, out in Colorado. Let's get this petition. Let's get uh, let's get Marv Klinky his uh, desert bighorn sheep tag that he deserves. You know, I told him about uh, oh, it was a couple of years ago. I said, you know, if you guys had a hair in your behind, I said you would give everybody over seventy five a moose tag. And they said, you got to be kidding me. And I said, no, I'm not kidding you. I said, why don't you do that? And he said, well, it would devastate our herd. And I said, tell you what I'll do. I said, I'll just make you a little wager right now. You find out how many people over 75 would hunt moose. <laughs> and the guy sit there and he sit there and thought about it. He never answered me. <laughs> uh, that, that is so awesome. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time uh, with us. Um, and we are going to uh, stay in touch and, Hope that uh, you get that uh, bighorn uh, desert sheep tag uh, sent to you. We're, we're, we feel blessed to, to have this time with you. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you guys very, very much. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. Okay, you take care. Once again, we'd like to thank the listeners. This podcast would be pointless without you guys. Don't forget to... Who Leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Check us out on our website, tradquest.com. We're on Instagram, Facebook. Keep the wind in your face. Pick a spot and shoot straight. Frosty before the sun comes up, the geese are on the wing. The deer are fat and happy, no, they don't suspect the thing. I've got Nimrod neurosis, Mongols on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie through and through, hunts my middle name. My eyes are on the target, broadheads off by true. Can't wait till I can get outside so I can fling a few. Thank you.